Hey everyone, welcome to Creepy Inquiries. A podcast dedicated to all things creepy, spoopy, and true crimey. With your hosts, Miss Kevin and Edie, your friendly neighborhood queers. Troubled water. <laughs> Both Simon and Garfunkel are 81. <laughs> Both double whammy. Nice. Double whammy. Yep. Simon double plus whammy. Garfunkel equals 81 times double two, one. which is 162. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> Another musical legend, Carol King. Oh, fucking Woo-hoo! legend. 81 legend. Tapestry, one of the greatest albums of the 20th century. 20th century. Amazing. Yes. George Clinton, 81. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Wayne Newton, 81. (sighs) Next. (laughs) Let's see. We've got having a hot girl summer, Martha Stewart, 81. Ooh, God, yes. Miss Martha is looking like a snack these days, Mm -hmm. a health conscious snack. Maybe with all the best ingredients. <laughs> a healthy snack you could put together in just a few minutes. The Anna Gasteyer's Martha Stewart's Topless Christmas special yes. sketch oh, from yeah. the 90s was yes. just so good. So good. And it's a good thing. Finally, she painted Oprah's microphone white, famously when performing <laughs> on her show without asking Oprah first if it was okay. Barbara Streisand. Eighty-one, funny girl. God, yes, Barbara. Barbara, a star is born. I would love to have any kind of hair back on my my bald ass head, even if the only option was to have Barbara's a star is born hair, the perm. Oh God, Kevin, you just put this out into the universe, and now it is your responsibility to obtain a similarly looking wig. I accept. Please. You must. Please. I will take that. You must. Big library has to grow a Chris Christopherson beard. (laughs) (laughs) Just fucking please. You would look incredible. I can see it now. I will. And I will report back. Good. (laughs) But anyway, Evie, what the hell did you get up to this weekend? Uh, Well, this week I was bummed out, as most of us were, by the United States Supreme Court of assholes. We had really shitty decisions about affirmative action, about student loan relief, First Amendment rights to refuse to create hypothetical websites for hypothetical 
I didn't know that was even a thing. You could just bring cases on hypotheticals. Yeah, you're really not supposed to be able to. I truly don't know what, if anything, can be done about these new allegations that the... I mean, because what's done is done. It's decided by SCOTUS, but like... Yeah, but also like, I just don't... It's It boggles my mind that nobody until now Mm -hmm. bothered to ask the person who allegedly sent this email. And then when a reporter did, the guy was like, what? I didn't send that email. And I'm not Uh, gay. And I'm not gay. (laughs) So I just... I just don't know. I don't know. There was an okay gerrymandering opinion from early june sure yeah an okay tribal rights one Mm -hmm. sure yeah but just like mostly really really shitty opinions from a really really shitty makeup this term will go down in in infamy this is a really shitty court this is just a really really shitty court and it really sucks a lot and uh i've decided future true crime subject of the pod will be how clarence thomas being on the court is exactly joe biden's faults I, oh my I'll God, take yeah. it and I will listen no, to that with glee. regarding Anita Hill and all of yes, that. Yes, I will he talk about Clarence Thomas's Senate hearings sometime in future. But uh, listener, hold me to that. If I don't do that fairly soon, get at me in the DMs. He's just been a terrible person from day one. Yeah, he's yeah. really bad. Kavanaugh's really bad. Amy Coney Barrett, really bad. Gorsuch, not unilaterally as bad as I thought he was going to be. Fair. No, but But when he's bad, he's really bad. Kagan, sometimes disappointing. It just all, it all sucks. I mean, Sotomayor and Jackson are really holding the fort for Mm -hmm. any kind of progressive minded people on this court. And that's a, it's, it's hard for them to do. But I also went to brunch this morning and that was nice. So, <laughs> oh, that's amazing. That's wonderful. Yeah. Miss, what have you been up to? Well, this weekend was my littlest nephew's first birthday and birthday party. They coincided on the same day. Party, party. Cute. He's officially no longer a baby. I think he's He'll a toddler, always be unless a baby. he's a baby. He'll always be a baby. But it was fun. It was, it was, it was, you know, really, it was very people and everyone was there to celebrate this little man. And that was a lot of people. That's peopleful. <laughs> uh-huh. And I, but I did get to see my dad for the first time in a while. He was up from Florida and that was really That's nice. That's great. Hi, dad. Cool. Listener Listen to the of pod. the pod. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just to uh, piggyback off of Edie. Mm. I read the uh, affirmative action and the create the 303 creative website case and the majority opinions are outrageous. I mean, in the affirmative action case, it's literally just from like the first sentence you're going, you become incredibly aware that they are using the equal protection cause of the 14th amendment to justify outright discrimination by calling Um, affirmative action discrimination when we have to realize that these laws are put in place and these programs are put in place for a very distinct reason. And the distinction between what is law and what human beings are and how we think we are not the law. We never have been the law. Human beings do not just, we cannot just say that 
it is discriminatory because you are thinking about race. It is exactly what it means, the difference between equality and equity. Yeah, that whole opinion just reminded me of that, like, paradox of tolerance. Like, well, a society that doesn't tolerate intolerance isn't really tolerant then, is it? It's very, like, so much for the tolerant left. And it's like, it's not... Yeah, it doesn't accounting it doesn't, for accounting for um, the positive thumbs on the scale for white people in this country for hundreds of years is yeah. not discrimination against white people. But this well, opinion assumes that, that it opinion, is and it's bullshit. And they spend multiple paragraphs explaining how that is not enough reason. That is not a good enough reason to now discriminate against yeah. people using the way that action. this court looks at history is appalling we've yeah. seen it over and over again in terms of you know like privacy rights and stuff uh in order for it to be like a due process right it has to be steeped in the history and traditions of this country and like fucking yep. nothing is according Literally, you to have this court to con- you have to compare it to the state of the Constitution in 1791. That is the current legal analysis. That is what we are taught yeah, it's in law stupid. school to be lawyers. Yeah, it's it's originalism run amok and mm-hmm. structuralism run amok. It's very bad. It's it's I have it's a uh, it's poor readings of the Constitution. That's I don't title. care what the founding fathers wanted. But uh, I also read the full opinion for the 303 creative the first amendment case and uh it is just absolutely whataboutism they compare it they they compare a business open to the public for public accommodation to forcing an atheist to create religious materials the argument that is that is made by the majority sounds so much like religious freedom but we're not using the establishment clause we're using the first amendment right to free speech and we are saying that any expressive creation or content so creating a website for someone is somehow expression therefore speech and therefore protected so you cannot force someone to create speech that is against their beliefs yeah and there's there's some degree to which I buy that line of logic, but another Absolutely. degree to which I don't. But that's um, for people who've been reading like shitty takes on Twitter and Instagram. Um, you might see people conflating things like making a cake or serving somebody at a restaurant with yeah. this holding. Those two things under the holding are not the same. We just need someone to call chefs artists and then uh, then they can have all of their food be their expressive content and we can yeah that's just, subway yeah that it's no, a here's statement the thing. my fettuccine alfredo is a statement yeah it's poetry my, a lot of people sort of misunderstand reasonably so the outcome of that case seeing it as yes. a door for any discrimination by any business against queer people and that's not the case what it is is any business that alleges to create expressive content has free dealing to discriminate against who they want even 
previously protected groups, including sexual orientation. Now, that doesn't mean that all businesses are going to start discriminating, but what it does is it opens the door to yeah. normalize it. It's and always then, been incremental change. Yeah, it's always it makes just that much bit more possible, but we are not there yet. And I think that it's it, it it's important to understand what we're talking about at the stage we're talking about it now. Not to say that it's not right to be alarmed. It's definitely right to be alarmed. But uh, if we want to have, if we want to be speaking legibly about what's happening in the Supreme Court, we should understand what the holding is and what it is not. Kevin, what anyway. have you been up to? Kev? <laughs> <sighs> uh, this weekend, I helped some of our, uh, one of my, our friends move apartments and I Ooh. am achy and I am Fun. grumpy and I am <laughs> bitter about it still. You are in your mid-30s day. about it. <laughs> Me of like in my soon to be mid thirties, this uh-huh. dude, he's not yet 30. So he oh, thinks it's still appropriate. No, mm-hmm. no, it's not. It's, it's really not a good idea to ask friends to move after oh, no. you're in your thirties. No. Uh, have I done it? Yes. But we also had very little stuff. Yeah. yeah. That's different. Well, it was. But I'm glad we did Oof. it. And I'm happy I helped real hero kev you're big and strong kevin thank you thank He's you our big man. <laughs> so that's what i did that was the majority of my weekend and i was sore and grumpy for the rest <laughs> of it well yeah. speaking of sore and grumpy i'm gonna be neither of those things because i'm <laughs> kicking my feet up maxing relaxing and i'm excited to hear some stories today Woo. i think that means me that does mean i have our miss. true crime I have our true crime story today, and it is mostly, what do we call it, Fun Town? Fun, fun zone. zone. It's mostly Fun Zone with a hint of Bummersville towards the end. On October 15th, a ma- I'm sorry, on October 15th, 1985, a man in a letterman jacket left a package in front of a Mr. Max store, a Utah-based clothing store that specialized in suits for Mormon men and missionaries. The store advertised the missionary starter set, a black suit and tie, a second pair of pants, and four white shirts. What about the, the special store, underwear? Do they sell the special underwear at the store? I mean, it's a, you already got your special underwear. You've already yeah, got going it. On a mission. Yeah. It's not part of the starter pack, but I'm sure they sell it. Mm-hmm. Um, the store was owned by Matt Christensen and his son, Steve Stewart and Spencer. Steve Christensen was also a bishop in the LDS church and a rare document and book collector and former CFS financial corporation vice president. Wait, miss. Steve arrived at Mr. Mac around 8 a.m. on October 15th and found the package that had been left by the letterman. When he picked it up, a pipe bomb covered in nails exploded Killing oh, Steve God, Christensen this one's so good. Sorry. and injuring a secretary. Oh, Oof. rest in peace, Steve. And that yeah. part is Bumbersville. But miss, I think I know what this story is. You and know, it is one of the greatest stories ever told. Yeah, no, you know what it is. 90 minutes later, a package arrived at the home of Gary and Kathy Sheets. 
Gary was the president of CFS Financial Corp, but unfortunately, Kathy was the only one home. So when she picked up the package, the most motion-censored pipe bomb exploded, killing her instantly. Oh, Kathy. At, oh. at first, police believed the bombings were targeting CFS higher-ups, as it was an open secret that the business was on the edge of collapse and hundreds of investors were about to lose a lot of money. However, when a third bomb exploded the next day in a luxury sports car near the Salt Lake Temple, severely injuring the owner, Mark Hoffman, the investigation took a wild-ass turn. Mark Hoffman. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, Mark Hoffman... Was born on December 7th, 1954, in a, de a devout Mormon family. Mark was said to be uninterested in school and got below average grades, but he had many hobbies like magic, electronics, chemistry, and stamp collecting. Okay, look, Nerd. I don't want to begrudge. Okay, it was like the 60s. Their... Okay, Nerd. it was like the 60s. Look, kids, it's it's good. I was I was a I was a big indoor kid. I cut open Barbies to see what was inside them, and I turned out fine. But the combination <laughs> of magic and stamp collecting, I feel, is um, it's, it's a red flag. <laughs> it, it should be a red flag. It it's should a red have flag. been this Send that kid to a psychiatrist. Yes. That there kid's got so many... stuff to talk about. You'll see. So when he was 12, Mark took up a new hobby of coin collecting and very soon <gasps> became very hyper-focused on rare and valuable coins. He'd spend hours at a time examining and comparing valuable and non-valuable coins to ascertain the very, very subtle differences between the two. You can make a bunch of money on that. You can, right? By the time Mark was 15, he was confident enough that he had enough information to counterfeit replicas of <sighs> valuable coins. Yeah, he was confident right. enough. He was a confident man. You might call him a confidence a man. man. A, a confidence, confidence artist, perhaps? A con, a con man, y'all. You <gasps> know how much I love a fucking con man. <laughs> I love counterfeiting stuff. I love uh -huh. forging stuff. Uh -huh. It's cool. And that's what you get into when you're into both magic and stamp collecting. You be that's exactly right. It. A counterfeit. You, you magic your way. Yeah. All of it. So from allthat'sinteresting.com, quote, as an experiment, he took an ordinary coin and masked it photographically, leaving only part of the metal where the mint mark would be. The mint mark is a letter that identifies where a coin was made. Then he electroplated a D on the bare spot of the coin and built it up to a certain height to make a new mark, which was rarer than the original, end quote. Now, we say he's a nerd, but this is where a hobby in chemistry can really be effective. <laughs> yeah, you know what? This is the thing. It's, it's science. It's We're doing magic. The Walter White it's sitch. deviousness. It's a Walter White sitch. It's absolutely this is all of that. Parents. Don't, Don't let, let your kids, kids be scientists. <laughs> be scientists. <laughs> They're going to counterfeit stuff. I really don't think we have to warn a lot of parents in this country. They're pretty already anti-science anyway. So. Uh, uh, oh, God, that's uh, true. Yeah. Satisfied with his results. Oh, this is continuation of the quote. Satisfied with his results, Hoffman took his newly forged coin to a local coin dealer. 
The shop owner examined it and offered him thousands of dollars for the coin if it passed inspection by the U.S. Treasury Department. The 15-year-old did not flinch and told him to send it in. Yes, Mark. The U.S. Treasury Department pronounced it to be genuine, thus commencing a career and near-fatal obsession with forging and counterfeiting rare materials. It's so good. It's so good. You know what that reminds me of? It reminds me of send these jewels to Tiffany. He'll appraise them. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) He'll tell you how valuable they are. And they were like, yeah, send them to Tiffany. You send it over to Tiff. (laughs) You send it over to my assistant, Tiff. Send it to Tiff. Uh, Also in high school, Mark and his friends, just as a hobby, (laughs) would go to the outskirts of Murray, Utah, and make and set off bombs. Oh, you know what? Mr. Pickney used to set some fires with his friends sometimes. Okay. Setting up. He wasn't making explosives. (laughs) No. Unless he was firebombing places, that is different. It was it was borderline activity. It was it was borderline activity, especially for such we a all sensitive did weird boy. Shit. He a was, sensitive he, he's a boy. sensitive boy. He's a, a sensitive boy. Was he just led astray by some bad boys? Is that what it was? Yeah, there was this kid he became friends That's with in middle school, Johnson Chen. Mm-hmm. Johnson Chen taught him how to cheat. <gasps> Johnson <gasps> Chen, you know what you've Our done. Perfect little little Our man? perfect boy. <gasps> Our perfect boy I'm was upset. led astray by Johnson Chen. Hashtag cancel Johnson Chen. It sounds like cancel Mark was the, Johnson Johnson, was the Johnson Chen of this group. Um, he seems like the bad influence, to be honest. So in 1973, Mark volunteered to be a missionary and was sent to Brighton, England for two years, which like cushy fucking gig. That's a okay. great yeah, missionary gig. You bad. can get sent anywhere, but like Brighton, it's like the south of England. It's the beach. It's yeah. like a good time. While in Bristol, Mark came across a copy of No Man Knows My History, a biography of Joseph Smith written by (laughs) Fawn Brody. (laughs) No Man Knows My History because I made it all up. I made it Joseph Smith. (laughs) Nope, that's exactly what it is. Yep. (laughs) Brody was a disillusioned ex-Mormon, and her biography of Smith was not well-received by the church, and she was excommunicated after it was published. (gasps) But they're so, like, cool and chill about criticism. So cool and so chill, as this story will show. They're so chill. (laughs) In her book, Smith is depicted as a grifter and imposter who ended up buying his own bullshit enough to convince himself that he was, in fact, a prophet. Though in 1971, Brody supplemented her original analysis of Smith from deliberate charlatan to conflicted person with sign of personality disorders. And I just can't see how both are not true. I think he is a charlatan. And Mm -hmm. I think he probably had to have some mental illness to be able to buy his own bullshit as much as he did. Yeah, he got got high on his own supply for sure. He absolutely did. From here, Mark continued his education by reading books that criticized Mormonism. He also learned to his dismay that his maternal grandparents continued practicing polygamy more than a decade after it was outlawed by the church. Surprisingly, though, his new knowledge and less than shiny presentation of the prophet and his religion as a whole did not cause a crisis of faith. Because Mark would later tell prosecutors that he had 
been an atheist since he was 14 years old. Oh, Not well. uncommon. Because if you're a memo, you've got to be like, if you, have you to want play the game. a relationship, in a lot yep. of cases, if you yeah. want a relationship with your family and your extended family, you, yeah. you stay in it regardless of what you believe. And I think mm -hmm. that's true for a lot of, of religious people. I think so groups. too. I think it's very common, but it's a for a Mormon at this time to say that he was an atheist was a shocking statement. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. A former girlfriend explained Mark only went on the missions trip because of social pressures and not wanting to disappoint his parents, which many, many people can relate to. Oh, mm -hmm. Many, many. Yeah, I know several people who were in that exact scenario. Yeah. After Mark returned to Utah, he went to Utah State University and became a legitimate artifact collector before he started selling and forging them. But you know, he's a genius because that's what you got to do. You got to give do. yourself legitimacy and then you can you like verify the stuff that you fake. Man, Mark, yep. Mark's making me like him and I, I know that I shouldn't. I know that I can't. Honestly, if it wasn't for his greed, which we will see later, he could have gone on doing this for a lot longer than he did. <laughs> In 1979, he met and married Doralee Dory Olds, still keeping his atheism to himself, and the two would have four children together. In 1980 is when Mark really comes into himself. He claims that year he found a 1688 edition of the King James Bible, and folded in the back was a piece of gummed up paper tucked inside he presented the document to Dean Jesse, the best-known expert on historical documents and handwriting at the Historical Department of the LDS Church, and confirmed Mark's assertion that the paper was a holograph or an original document penned by an original author of the Golden Plates, as read by Smith to his yes. scribe, Martin Harris, in yes. 1828. Now... He went big with the plates right away, miss. It was one of the first ones. <laughs> <laughs> like, this was, like, what put him on the map as, like, a yes. legit, like, document artifact dealer. Oh, my gosh. Miss, can you explain to the people a little bit yep. about these plates? Of course. I even wrote, Mormon history alert. I will absolutely not be delving into the complete history and intricacies of Mormonism, but I will do no, some educating as needed. No. <laughs> the golden plates, sometimes referred to as the golden Bible, were found by Smith within a stone box in a hill near his home in Manchester, New York. Now, Joseph Smith said that an angel named Moroni spoke to him and directed him to the location of the plates where they were buried. And he would not explain what the plates were. And he also would not allow Joseph to view the plates until such time that God deemed him worthy and he was not as it was in at this time. Joseph, it's me, Moroni. Here are these plates. Don't look at them, but they're here for real. You can't see them and you can't show them to anyone, but here they are. They're important and real. Okay, that might have been a direct quote from Moroni. That's eerie. That could be. Um, Look, call me a Mormon historian because I know my shit. <laughs> Moroni told him 
uh, told Joseph that Satan would try to tempt him to get the golden plates and sell them for profit because his family was poor. Joseph would be allowed to view the plates when God saw that he had no other motive in getting the plates except to glorify God. You're such a good guy, Joseph. You'd never bullshit people for money. Yeah, we're going to get into later, not during this point, but we're going to get into why that's bullshit too. (laughs) Joseph would return on September 22nd for the next four years. September 22nd, 1827, God said it was cool. He could look at them. What was inscribed on the metal plates was the Lost Book of Mormon. This book was written in the early parts of the millennia. It was written by a man named Mormon and his son, Moroni, which is how we get the name Mormon. They're called Mormons because this is the book of Mormon that they're following. Mormon was the dude who wrote it down. The plates were said to have weighed about 50 pounds and they contained thin metallic pages engraved in hieroglyphics in what Smith called reformed Egyptian on both sides and bound with three rings, like a binder to save paper. And like, this is the best thing. I'm sure you're going to get into it, miss, but this is the best thing about Smith's grift and the most unfortunate thing about the timing of Smith's grift, because at the time Smith was like, nobody knows how to read hieroglyphics. I can just draw (laughs) pictures and it'll be fine. But then Boom, the Rosetta Stone gets translated, and then he's like, I mean, oh, of a fuck. <laughs> I mean, that's a few decades later, but yes, the Rosetta Stone, I think, is in the yeah. 60s. I mean, I guess, it, I guess it fucks things up for, like, Brigham Young. It Joseph Smith yeah, has already been killed by his it. followers at this point. Oh, but. yeah. yeah. No. So, important to note that Reformed Egyptian was a completely made-up language and completely unknown to linguistics and Egyptologists from that time through today. Though, Reformed Egyptian is still believed to have been a subsect of the language by many Mormons. Hey, it's me, Moroni. Don't worry about what the real Egyptians wrote. This is special Egyptian just for you. Maybe it's like Cotillion Spanish and like Latin American Spanish or like American English and English English. Like it's the same or Australian English anyway. It's the same language, quote unquote, but there's like a lot of differences. And maybe, you know, reformed Egyptian was more for um, heretics and liars. (laughs) Yeah. In reformed Egyptian, they call it the boot of the car, not the trunk of the car. And they call it fairy floss instead of cotton candy. Yeah. Fairy floss. Yeah. Weird. Yep. Yeah. They called zip lines flying foxes. Okay. That's that's way cooler. It is. It's better. It's better. That's that's one of the newest ones that I learned from reformed Egyptian to regular Egyptian. Listener, one day you'll be lucky enough to hear the story about how Mrs. Entire Being and Body rejected zip lining, but that's not what we're into today. (laughs) Just a little nugget. (laughs) Smith then dictated the reformed Egyptian hieroglyphics to Martin Harris, his scribe. The trick was that no one, including Smith, could gaze directly at the plates. Joseph said Moroni told him that if anybody looked at the plates, 
they would face the immediate wrath of God. You really can't look at them and it's not because they're not there. No, many believe they were like Joseph just like really hastily put them together and nobody would believe it was anything if they were allowed to look at it. Yeah. Yeah. He's good at the grift and he got people sucked in. Like he bought people, got people bought in fairly early so he could just be like, the plates are too powerful. You can't have more than a cursory glance at them. No, and he's like flashing this, a fake. F- it's the equivalent of like flashing a fake FBI badge. Yes, you just just flip like it up really real quick. quick. Uh huh. You don't just do it with confidence, it. and they'll let you in. A confidence man. No, before this point, Joseph Smith and the Smith family were a family of grifters, and they were okay at it. So it's he's not coming from a place of just like, I decided I'm going to be a prophet. Like he had been building up his resume and his skills for a long time to get to this point. One of the best in the game. He is, really is. Even Joseph didn't look at the plates. He wore glasses called Urim and Thummim, interpreters. They were just, they were glasses. There were two seer stones that he placed in the bottom of his hat. He then placed his face in his in the opening of his hat, blocking the light. Then Moroni... Just imagine watching this man do this. There are allegedly 13 witnesses that later after this, <laughs> there is like a Mormon important document called the witnesses. Like it's a whole thing. The Mormon witnesses. Uh, there weren't 13 people there. So I don't know they're talking about so he's got the glasses urim and thummim and seer stones clear seer stones in the bottom of a hat he puts the hat over his face blocking all the light so he can look and then as he did that moroni gave him the translation that that joseph then dictated to martin so it's not even a translation that can be said to be attributed to joseph smith because whatever was happening in this hat was giving him what he needed. Though, this version is wildly disputed by nearly everyone. Mormons today agree that the glasses, the Urim and Thummim, were used to interpret the plates, but the use of the seer stone is quickly dismissed by many. We'll get more into that later. The translations took place in two stages. The first was December 1827 to June 1828, And then um, from January to June 1829, it was translated to scribe Oliver Cowdery. The Harris translation was supposed to have been lost later in the summer of Uh, 1828. uh. Yeah. Before it was lost, though, Harris and or Smith, I couldn't figure it out, took the translation to Charles Anthon a classics professor at Columbia University who attested to the authenticity of the reformed Egyptian hieroglyphs. <laughs> but that's not real. It's not a real language. While many agree that there is proof that this meeting occurred, that Harris met with Anthon, most dispute that he gave it a stamp of approval. But the Harris translation became known as the Anthon transcript. The folded up pages in the back of the King James Bible from the from earlier 
were then confirmed to be the original Anthon transcript by oh. expert Dean Jesse. And the LDS paid him a cool $25,000 for the document in addition to forged Mormon coin and paper money duplicates from when Mormons had their own money. That's incredible. This is 1980. It is over $92,000 today. I mean, that is a lot of money, but like for the, the, like that transcripts, that translation of the plates, I don't think they should be giving season one RuPaul's Drag Race prize money. That's what they gave Bibi Zahara Benet. That's what they did. I'm just saying it's 1980 for one job. So it's for, almost for one job. Yes. But he's doing and this constantly. He started so big too. I love yeah. that he started so big. Yeah. So this really bolstered him. So he's not always going to get $25,000, but he's getting thousands of dollars every time. And as we'll see later, there was over 400 documents that he sold to the Mormon church. <laughs> so he's like so really, uh, he like made forming some money. background of the actual church, right? If he, what he's forging yeah. is it's becoming doctrine. kind of like canon in the church unless yeah. the church wants to buy it up to bury it which is also ah, very funny there oh. she there oh, oh miss oh miss oh miss so and that was really his contention for a lot of this following this incredibly successful dupe mark dropped out of college and began a full-time career forging rare documents on september 4th 1981 Mark gave a letter he quote unquote found to church elder Gordon Hinckley, which presented Smith's son, Joseph Smith III, as the leader of the church in the event of Smith's death, not Brigham Young, who took over after he was murdered. Oh. The, the letter was supposedly written by Thomas Bullock on January 27th, 1865, and marked private and not sent. And the letter chastised Brigham Young for having all copies of the blessing, a.k.a. Smith appointing his son's successor, destroyed. So in this fake letter, he's accusing Brigham Young of oh. destroying all copies of this letter that never existed. It's so good. So good. Because that's going to make it more valuable to the church, right? If Mark is going to make right. something that's so incendiary that it would like turn the history of the church on its ass that's going to be more valuable to them because they're going to want to do like it. a catch and kill type thing. Exactly. Mark assumed the church would buy the letter at any price to bury the lead. But the chief archivist for the LDS balked at the price demanded by Hoffman, which was like over hundreds of thousands of dollars. Instead of negotiating, Mark offered the letter to the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the RDLS, now known as the Community of Christ, who split from the main church because they believed the line of secession had been bestowed upon Smith's son, not Brigham Young. So Ooh. he's buying directly. So they want this because they this want proves that. this is the proof they've always wanted that their church is legitimate and the main Mormon church, the LDS, is not. He's just lobbing bombs. So as a result, the Mormon sects were both aware of the document and 
both scrambled to retain it for their own records. However, eventually, the LDS paid Mark $20,000, but the news went public. The LDS was forced to publicly admit the letter was real and authenticated and, to save face, presented the document to the RDLS for their records. So they paid for it, (laughs) and they didn't even get to keep it. And it was public. (laughs) Selling these two forgeries to the LDS confirmed his disbelief in the religion, as the church had accepted the forgeries as real and tried their best to keep them covered from the congregation at large. Totally. Next, in 1982, the LDS church publicly announced another Hoffman original. A letter this time from Martin Harris to Walter Conrad, who was Brigham Young's brother-in-law. This bolstered the LDS's move to subtitle the Book of Mormon, Another Testament of Jesus Christ. Shortly thereafter, he sold a nearly identical letter to David Whitmer, one of three witnesses to Smith finding the plates, and that went for $10,000. Another letter sold for more than $5,000 was written by, supposedly written by Smith, referencing his treasure hunting days before his encounters with Moroni. Ooh. Confirmation of Joseph's less savory personal details were seen as a threat to the legitimacy of Smith as the prophet and was kept as a well-guarded secret from the Mormon masses. Oh, this is delicious. This is it absolutely is. delicious stuff. It is. Over the next four years, Mark continuously sold and traded many fraudulent LDS documents to the church, including letters that were supposed to be from Smith's mother and valuable signatures from prominent Mormons. Though his favorite money-making schemes involved duping the LDS, Mark did not limit himself to Mormon documents, and it is the non-Mormon documents that ultimately resulted in his downfall. So he sold many fake signatures from George Washington, John Adams, John Quincy Adams, Daniel Boone, John Brown, Andrew Jackson, Mark Twain, Nathan Hale, John Hancock, Francis Scott Key, Abraham Lincoln, John Milton, Paul Revere, Miles Standish, and Button Gwinnett, the rarest and most valuable signatory of the Declaration of Independence. Damn. Damn, he's got all the heavy hitters. Yeah, he does. He also successfully forged a, quote, original, therefore to unknown, poem written by Emily Dickinson. No, no. Don't fake a poem. And fake. And people bought it. This is not a dumb, this is not a stupid man. He not only had to understand poetry, Emily Dickinson's style, the time that it was written in, but the man wrote a poem that experts authenticated and agreed could not have been written by anyone else but Emily Dickinson. Wow. I mean, if you make it like all about how much you love your married best friend, Sue, like that's pretty, (laughs) yeah, honestly, solidly Emily. His biggest non-Mormon scheme was his plan to recreate the missing document called the Oath of a Freeman. The one-page document was the first document printed in the American colonies in 1639, and only 50 copies were made. 
All 50 copies were lost to history, but when Mark learned of a, supposedly learned, of a genuine Oath of a Freeman copy, he learned it could be worth more than a million dollars in 1985. He told his agents he had one. Wow. Got to. And his agents, without seeing anything, started negotiating a sale with the Library of Congress. Oh, my God. Well, you're oh my god stupid this is but this is how, the way to the top. how it goes in yeah. these industries you know yeah. like he's been a guy who's been selling all this stuff fake successfully for long enough and you just uh you become the documents guy look at how many documents he's sold uh-huh yeah so back in 1984 the year before mark presented his most audacious forgery to the mormon church the quote salamander letter. Oh, I've heard of Excuse this. Excuse me? Mm-hmm. The salamander letter? Mm-hmm. It was a huge fucking scandal. It rocked hey, the church. I'm, I'm Gary. I'm a salamander, and I'm uh, writing this letter to you, Joseph Smith, my very best human friend. XOXO is Gary the salamander. <laughs> okay, I love Gary the salamander, by the way. Uh, no, a little different. The letter was allegedly written by Martin Harris in 1830, tells a much different story of the discovery of the golden plates than the accepted version by the church. Yes. Instead of a simple farmer being visited by the angel Moroni, the salamander letter describes Joseph Smith as a treasure hunter who used magic to summon a white salamander. The letter... (laughs) Hi, I'm Gary. I I didn't tell you in my last uh, letter that I am a white salamander and I uh, can be summoned to help you find treasure. Okay, bye. (laughs) Exactly. The letter describes Martin Harris's first meeting with Smith occurred when Harris's father introduced him to Joseph and said, Joseph often sees anything he wishes by looking at a stone. Joseph often sees spirits with great kettles of coin money oh my god (laughs) they're doing the joseph smith is actually a witch he's actually a witch well no he they actually believe the devil the only magic that's legitimate is like the good god kind of magic if it doesn't come from if it's not this specific magic then the magic and how dare you call that magic Edie? i see what you're doing but how dare you no, that's just that's just the workings of the Lord. <laughs> so instead of the angel Moroni presenting him with the plates, the letter details how he found the plates using seer stones and a spirit who transfigured into the white salamander. Hey, the, it's me. The spirit also demanded that Smith bring his recently deceased brother to the salamander if he wanted to get his hands on the golden Bible. Look, so let, let me eat the corpse, corpse of your dead brother, Joseph. <laughs> I don't know what that. The rest Gary of the letter was for flesh. <laughs> the rest of the letter is unimportant except for Harris's reference to a planned visit to Professor Anthon. So, the Salamander letter was first sold to LDS Bishop Steve Christensen. Why was this letter taken seriously by the church? There are And it's because there are really uncomfortable details about Smith's pre-Mormon life that make the letter seem at least plausible. As I said before, the plates were transcribed by Martin Harris, 
how the plates were transcribed is disputed, but the salamander letter explicitly states the use of the seer stones using the hat. The funny, silly way right, we were Right, right. And that was the thing that, like, mainline Mormonism right. is like, no, that's not how it happens. Right. Um, because. But it's in dispute. Right. Oh, because it's, it's too magic-y? Yeah, the seer stone was linked to occult and esoteric religions, and the LDS liked to de-emphasize its use as much as possible, feeling, fearing the use of the occult practices could delegitimize the church. Other Smith family items not shown to the public link Smith and other uses of magic. A knife given by Smith's father to his brother Hiram had a carving on the blade of the astrological symbols for the planet Mars. When Smith was murdered, he had a talisman found on his body that was engraved with the symbols of Jupiter. Mm. Smith also copied heavily from Masonic rituals and repackaged them in Mormonism. Yes. I mean, I was just thinking about how he dictated to the scribe is very kind of Masonic. And then that was also kind of uh, folded into things like the um, Ordo Templi Orientis and like Mm -hmm. Crowley stuff. Like fucking Jack Parsons used LRH as his scribe when they were trying to do the Babylon working in the 40s. Yes, they were. I didn't go into it, but the symbols for Mars and the symbols of Jupiter are heavily used in occult magic rituals. Um, And he also used, allegedly used a Masonic distress call before he was killed. All of this so-called magic is in direct disconnect with LDS beliefs. And Mark knew enough of this stuff to make a forgery that was believable enough to be very dangerous to the church. Man, this guy is a genius. Yeah. I don't condone it. I don't condone what he does in the past or or future in this story, but he's a very, very smart person. He is. I'd also detailed how Smith was a money digger, which we know is a grave robber. So he robbed graves for jewelry and pawned them off. It's a lot of fun. Though Steve Christensen purchased the letter for $40,000, he was very skeptical and wanted it authenticated now. And the Salamander letter was met with far more pushback than the Anton transcript was. Christensen, though, received declarations of authenticity from local experts, but opinions were still split. Mm. Enter Gerald and Sandra Tanner, prominent critics of Mormonism. The Tanners had previously researched all the magical influences on early Mormonism and knew of Smith's many connections, but even still, the Salamander letter didn't sit right. They acknowledged through their testing that the handwriting, the paper, and the ink appeared to be authentic. The language used did not match Martin Harris, though. Harris was a very religious man, and all letters available from Harris today use the words Lord, Angel, and Holy too many times to count, and many other religious imagery. The Salamander letter, however, was completely devoid of any religious language. Oof, Uh, Mark, you fucked up. Yeah, and others also started realizing that the letter was way too similar to Eber D. Howe's 1834 expose on Mormonism. 
the contents of the salamander letter were revealed to the populace of the LDS church in April, 1985 with a statement. No one can be certain the letter was written by Martin Harris, but also the church accepted an examiner's opinion that the letter was not a forgery. They also sent letters to pastors and youth programs, discouraging all discussion of the letter in classes. Yeah. Okay. So they're kind of like hedging their bets. Like it's maybe real. It's maybe not real, but like, don't talk about it. Don't mention Gary the Salamander in your Mormonism classes. Exactly. Gerald Tanner, meanwhile, was on the case and concluded he had very, very serious doubts that the letter was authentic. He published an attack of the letter, which surprised many scholars, since it would only serve to bolster his own complaints concerning Mormonism. Tanner began questioning the authenticity of most of Mark's so-called discoveries. Ooh, you in danger, Gary. mm -hmm. Though the Tanners agreed that Mark's assertion that the LDS's inability to realize the documents were faked was evidence that church leadership was not divinely inspired. Up until this point, Mark was making buttloads of money off of his forged and sometimes real rare documents. Because I'm only talking about the big guns, but throughout his career, he's wheeling and dealing real, rare, actual, legitimate items. Oh yeah. You got to get some realies in the mix so that you have your fakies in the mix. He lived an incredibly lavish lifestyle. And by 1985, he was in a ton of debt. He had an expense, a new expensive sports car. He had a massive private collection of authentic first edition rare books. He had oh also God. taken He's out like a nerdy Lyle Menendez, just yeah. like <laughs> spending, getting a Rolex. Yeah. He had also taken out many loans from institutions, but also members of the church. And he was running out of time before the collectors started calling. He entered into two very lucrative deals that would solve his money problems. First, it is the oath of a Freeman letter that we talked about. He claimed he found it in the back of a book in New York City in a bookstore. He had obviously placed the forged version in the back of the book and purchased the book from the store for a traceable paper trail. Mm -hmm. He started telling everyone he could that it was easily worth $1.5 million. And that's when he started negotiations with the Library of Congress. While he was negotiating, he got fucking greedy. And he claimed he found a second copy of the book. And everyone became suspicious. It would be incredible enough for a person to find a single copy of the oath in existence. But for that same person to also find the Anthon transcript and the Salamander letter was nearly impossible. And his second money-making scheme that was going to get him out of this mess, he began inferring to LDS leadership that he located the McLellan Collection, a group of manuscripts by William McLellan, an excommunicated early Mormon leader. Many leaders believed, based on Mark, that whatever the contents of the collection was would be very damning for the church. And Mark planned to forge the entire collection. 
Now that yeah. collection was later found. A real copy was found, but it was completely unrelated to Mark's idea of what it contained. That's he's so he's so cavalier at this point that he's like instead of making things up that he knows are not real, he's saying like, okay, there's something it's out there. Yeah. But I'm going to hedge my bets. I'm going to bet yes. that nobody's going to find it yeah. and I'm going to bet that I can just make up what it's isn't just it. reformed Egyptian again. It's reformed Egyptian. Oh my yeah. God. Hoffman is Joseph Smithing. He is. I mean, he's been doing it the whole time. He's. And so isn't he just like the best Mormon? He the he's prophet. like the most he's Mormon. The best. He's the most Mormon. Absolutely. By the fall of 1985, Steve Christensen, who had also loaned Mark money because they ran in the same circles, became increasingly convinced that Mark Hoffman was a fraud, and he demanded that Mark pay back his loan as soon as possible. In October, it was revealed that the Library of Congress deal fell through. On October 11th, Mark and Steve were scheduled to meet concerning authenticating the McClellan collection that he had not even begun forging yet, but Mark never showed. Steve contacted a mutual friend to tell him to tell Mark that he was at risk of criminal charges and excommunication from the church. Both equally bad. <laughs> mm -hmm. So Mark started building bombs. And that brings us back to the beginning. Oof. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It was later discovered that Gary Sheets was targeted and his wife, Kathy was killed, not because Steve Christensen and he worked together at CFS, but because sheets was also supposed to be an investor on the McLellan collection scam. So he was trying to buy his time to get enough time to, to forge these documents that he is supposed to be selling. Because these investigators, these investors are breathing down his neck. He's yes. thinking, okay, I have to get rid of these investors. And wrong. then, <laughs> yes. And then he tries to pipe bomb himself to make it look like somebody's after all of them. No. So, no, so, what he, so the first two bombs go off, they kill Steve, they kill Kathy. And then the third bomb went off the next day in Mark's car. So some believe it was meant to be for another target. Some argue it was a botched attempt to own his own life. However, that is untrue. It was more than likely it was intended for a third target because it was discovered that the bomb was detonated when he attempted to put the package in his car, but he fumbled it. And when he caught it and it was stable, it exploded because these bombs are motion activated. Oh my God. He just fumbled the football and it exploded yeah. on him. I thought was, that it would, the smarter move would be to like fake pipe bomb himself so that he would get injured, but not killed and throw off the scent. Yeah. But he just was like on his way to pipe bomb somebody else. Yes. Oh my God, Mark. Wow. So police discovered his massive for forgery operation in his basement that his wife claimed she did not. He just liked old documents. So that was basically his office. So she had no idea what he was doing. And materials used to make the pipe bombs were found in the same room. Man, make your pipe bombs in a different room than you make your forgeries, people. He got too big for his britches. Amateur hour. 
I know. In 1987, Mark Hoffman pleaded guilty to two counts of second degree murder and and many counts of theft by deception. And he was sentenced to life in prison. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. You take a plea in that case. Totally. Yes, you do. Yeah, you you don't go to trial on that. Because he was facing state and federal charges. Yeah. He was, and he was also facing the death penalty in Utah. So yeah, yeah, he needed yeah. to uh, mitigate that. Good call. In 1987, his wife left him when he was convicted. Only after he was excommunicated. Only after he was convicted. Oh. <laughs> and fun fact about Mormonism: they're married for eternity, regardless of civil divorce. So when they both die, she's still his wife. In the afterlife. He gets a planet if he's good yep. enough, and then she's there on the planet with him yeah. forever. Uh-huh. Mark's forgeries still pop up from time to time to this day in auctions and museums and in private collections all over the world. I truly could not even begin to touch on the amount of documents he forged, but the LDS church alone identified 446 items purchased from Mark Hoffman that were forgeries. And that was not even half of what they purchased from him. So half, so they purchased more than 800 documents from him and half of them were real. I mean, Mark later told an investigator quote, I feel like I would rather take a human life or even my own life rather than to be exposed. Yeah. Quote, I don't feel anything for them. My philosophy is that they're dead. They're not suffering. I think life is basically worthless. They could have died just as easily in a car accident. I don't believe in God. I don't believe in an afterlife. They don't know they're dead. I mean, that's some that's some hardcore rationalization, Mark. <laughs> but it is. I'm thinking about his ex-wife. That way, and she like good. He doesn't believe in God. He doesn't get a planet. He doesn't get a planet. She doesn't have to be on there. Yeah, maybe he just doesn't get a planet. No planet. Maybe she's off the hook in the afterlife. Hopefully, but uh, that is the story of Mark Hoffman, Mormon forger and murderer. You know, we've had a bad track record with Hoffmans. We've had Terry Hoffman of the Black Lords and uh, fighting in the astral plane, and we have Mark Hoffman. Forger well, this, and pipe bomber. Yeah, this Hoffman is a That's single right. F double N Hoffman. So I thought that was unique. Oh, so that's a different spelling of Hoffman. Terry Hoffman was a double F single N. Yeah. Hmm. But yeah. Hmm. Kev, you got us a spoop? I sure do have a spoop. Spoop me up, baby. And um, Kevin I'm, is I'm a ready biscuit. Let him spoop me up. Let him spoop you up. I sure will. <laughs> And and end. <clears throat> before I do, just general reminder, find us on social media at Creepy Inquiries Pod. You know Please. the drill. All right. Greetings to you, Miss My Irish Lass and Edie, my decidedly not Irish lax. Lax. Oh, that's good. I'm not I'm not Irish. You're right. You are decidedly not Irish, but you will be an Irish lax yes. today. How about that? Yes, I'll be your Irish okay. laxative. Yeah, I will. For I present to you some fierce Celtic mythology for your nerves today. Boots, the leprechauns down. Yeah, this is a story that I had to wait on to tell after Miss blindsided me on episode 78 with her true crime about Grania O'Malley. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you remember when you started like doing uh, your story, and I was like, oh, God damn it, because I had planned to do. This story, the next episode, I was like, oh, we can't be too no, Irish heavy. We can't. So I had to skip it for now, but it's okay. 
Stories getting told, episode 81. So are you in the mood to take a trip to a, a different realm today yes. for a bit? Of course. Yes. Good, because I think we first need to set up that realm to make sense for the rest of the story about today's subject. Because okay. for episode 81, we're going to be standing on an Irish fairy goddess of almost blinding beauty. And not just a fairy goddess. No, 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 no. But also a queen mama. (gasps) She's queen of the banshees. (gasps) Yay! Fun! Yes. Yes. A goddess, fairy goddess, queen of the banshees. Her name is Kleena, spelled (laughs) C-L-I-O-D-N-A. That's how you spell Kleena. That's how you spell Kleena. The O and the D are silent, but to make it easier for our non-Irish speaking folks, I've titled my story, The Banshee Queena, Kleena. Ta-da! Cute! Cute! Okay. <clears throat> so, Kleena comes from the Enchanted Realm, whose name I'm fairly sure you, uh, we all three know, have heard of. It goes by the name of Tirnanog. Mm-hmm. We heard it from yes. Irish folklore. We also have heard it from the Baltimore restaurant that was outside the, the Inner Harbor. The bar that's at the Inner Harbor, Tiernanog. Tiernanog, which is permanently closed. I did just Google it to see if it was yeah, still open. That whole place is a ghost town. Gonzo. I think the Tiernanog used to be the planet Hollywood, but I could be wrong. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a lot. Anna Harbor looks very different. You used to have this place called Tiernanog, and it's just your Irish bar, gastropub sort place, you know. Mm-hmm. Tiernanog. It translates from Gaelic to land of the young. It's generally depicted as an island paradise of everlasting youth and beauty and abundance and joy. What, so it's Little St. James? Is it Epstein Islands? <laughs> I'm not from there, but I am from the island of youth and beauty. Look at me. That's Look at right. you, miss. <laughs> and so many supernatural folk call that place home. And because of this, and because each Irish family had their own traditional tellings of stories from this realm, there are so many different names for this other world. Oh, okay. They most often refer to it simply as the other world, which is good. Easy. Easy, clean. Easy to know. Yeah. But uh, old Irish names for the realm, in addition to Tiernanog, include, um, and forgive me, I did try looking up pronunciations on the Gaelic. The names include Tirfortuin, which is the land under the wave. Hmm. There's Magmel, or the plain of delight. Ooh. And finally, uh, Tirtengr, which Ooh. is the land of promise. Tirtengr. I love I like all of one. these names. I would oh, do D and D campaigns in any one of these locations. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yes, Kleena called this realm home, and I believe the stories that surround her most often refer to the other realm um, as the Tier Tengr. It's so hard to say because it's T A I R N, and then you have like the Gr at the end, Tengr. <laughs> You did it. I love the ha- I love the hand with it. It's a whole. Look. It's hard. I'm trying to do a Whitney hand. To doing make sure. yes, full doing physicality, hand. full '90s diva physicality. I try. Good. So Kleena lives there, and she was a member of the godlike figures, the Tuatha De Dan. And according to Irish folklorist W. B. Yeats, the Tuatha De Dan uh, were trooping fairies. They were. Oh. Basically, like fallen angels who were not good enough to be saved, but not bad enough to be lost. 
and they are essentially like royal warrior fairy gods that can you know do things like shapeshift or or what have you cool um, and this description is from wb yates the irish poet who famously got in a wizard fight with alistair crowley that was also <laughs> just referenced by edie in my story <laughs> I didn't plan that. We tied it together. You know We're just that so little great butt guys. boy, Alistair Crowley, shows his little tush everywhere. Tush. Like a whack a mole, really. Really, <laughs> keep him down. Yeah. So these fairy folk—they're—they're they're godlike. They're warriors. They're royal. They have powers. And uh, Tuatha Dé Danann—they made their way to Ireland, the Irish Isles, through. Mm-hmm different portals that they can get or entrances throughout the lands, which is they can kind of get to them through hillsides, through the sea, through tree trunks, through stones, these burial mounds that are also throughout the islands, which are um, called the sheath. Mm-hmm. Over time, that royal race of the Tuatha Dé Danann, they blurred more with the broadly kind of categorized fairy folk, including leprechauns, banshees, you name it, once they started commingling with the humans. Okay. Um, Kleena herself was no exception. So in the other world, she was the queen of the banshees. Banshees translates to woman of the fairy mound. They uh, are feminine spirits who herald death of family members by wailing. Sometimes they would represent one family's home, like a noble family you might have. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes banshees would herald the death for entire villages or towns. It just kind of depends on who's okay. telling the stories. Fair enough. Banshees often appear as raggedy, wrinkled, ghastly women with dark cloaks, stringy white hair, and they can stand between one and four feet tall. Ooh. I did not know that they were so small. No. They're teeny. Yes. But in some instances, since they are fairy folk, they they can shapeshift. Uh, Say if an infant were about to die, uh, the Banshees mm-hmm. probably sometimes wouldn't show up as the weird witchy-looking look, but they might switch it up and do a kind of Snow White-type lurk and do like oh. a sweet melodic, like, the baby's gonna die. I don't know. I don't know. I wow. hope it's that. I hope it's exactly that. <laughs> oh, baby's gonna die. I will not help All they do is sing to the mom that your baby's going to die. I'm not going to help, but I look hot when I'm doing it. (laughs) Kleena being queen of all banshees, she never had to resort to her raggedy old lady lurk. Her powers were such that she just radiated beauty always. She was a gorgeous goddamn fairy goddess bitch maybe this is more like snow white than we thought yes Uh, fairies even queens of banshees and queens of fairies they have this duality of morals much like humans do so they're not all seen as good or all Mm -hmm. bad beings they possess both and magic to boot so they have their good days with humanities they have their bad days with us and i guess if you're immortal you have to you know pass the time somehow so uh that means little i know if you want to just kill a couple men every now and then go for it there's so men are many. dumb it's a little there's treat so many of them 
the stories of Kalina are fascinating with these kind of contrasting tones. And they mm-hmm. kind of add to the sense of intrigue that surrounds her. She's usually depicted as having three brightly colored birds that are always flying, fluttering around her. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is big time Disney princess vibes. Yeah. Big time. These are the fairy godmothers. <laughs> and uh, the three birds were in possession of magical healing powers because uh, back in Tirnanog, they could eat apples from sacred trees. And that Ooh. would bestow them with powers that could um, heal sick humans, based, uh, so, mostly. So oh. the stories are if you were sick and you were to hear beautiful birds singing outside your window you were kind of lulled to a magical sleep and the next morning when you would wake up your ills would vanish so okay. she 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 threw humans some bones every now and then she was nice when she was thanks ladies and beautiful to boot in the human realm she set up shop in county cork in the beautifully large rock uh, which is now referred to as cariclina or clina's rock hmm. and she in the human world in Ireland is mostly associated with the southern parts of the island, especially in County Cork. Mm-hmm. She is closely related to a few noble families and clans that were in that area, namely um, McCarthy's, O'Collins, and O'Donovan's. Cool. No, you know what? She's disowned Kevin McCarthy. I heard it from she Kena herself. She's like, he's not one of mine. She truly has. And Jenny McCarthy. Fuck out of here. Melissa, she stays. She can stay. Melissa McCarthy's all right. She can stay. Yeah. And her downfall, as in most stories from the beginning of time, was due to her falling inexplicably in love with a mediocre white dude. Oh, God. Whom's among us? You want to know what that dude's name was? Kyle. It's spelled C I A B H A N or pronounced. Kevin. Kevin. Oh, it's you. It was me. <laughs> Kevin. Kevin destroyed her. You ruined it wasn't her. It was Kevin, it was Kevin. Yeah, white right. Man. Okay. That's mm, like Urkel. That's like Stephen Urkel. Urkel. It's and Stephon Urkel. It wasn't me. It was Stephon Urkel. Okay. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, Stephon. Yeah. So we first meet Kevin after he's been <laughs> expelled from this. I know it sounds so weird. I had to practice it. I'm sure you did. After he was <laughs> expelled from a warrior clan for being uh-huh. too much of a ladies' man. Oh. <sighs> does not bode that, well already. Does that sounds not describe like our Kevin to a T? <laughs> to a T. It's just, just a lady. To a silent man. B. Yeah. We just, too many ladies. So much as like a lady man instead of a, a lady man. You're lady right. Man. You're right. You're right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> So he gets banished from the warriors, and so he sets sail for distant lands, I guess being a matcha or whatever. He gets caught in this terrible storm at sea, and suddenly out of nowhere, a rider on a gray horse, I believe on the sea, okay. brings him to safety into Tir Tangir, I cannot pronounce it well, the land of promise. Uh-huh. While he's in the city, he's invited to a great feast because it's not uncommon for humans to make their way into that realm and vice versa. So there's mm-hmm, stories of plenty mm-hmm. of humans going there and having experiences. Yeah, this is one of those. He's invited to a great Sounds feast like where some 
<laughs> where some tricksters ask him to perform some like party favor trick. I think it involves something like throwing nine straight willow rods up into the rafters of the building and catching them all before they would hit the ground. Oh, okay. I thought wow, he was supposed to shoot ping pong balls across the room out of his asshole. I think that may have been part of it. I just didn't read the story long enough. Okay, so got that it. Could have been it. <laughs> And he did. He he accomplished that task. And so people, I guess, were like, whoa, he's pretty legit. Like, <laughs> whoa, look at this Kevin's dude. pretty cool. Needy, mediocre. This dog can sit and roll over. I want to give yeah. up everything for him. <laughs> can shake on one paw and the other paw. Just like. So who was also at that feast but the queen herself, Kleena? She was working herself being amazing, being goddess. I guess she becomes smitten with him. I don't know why. She saw that trick. He and really was like, caught the fuck out of those rods. Yeah. He must have known. What her. else can what? he do? It, he must have looked incredible. He must have looked like Lee Pace. He must I mean, have been do. six foot five and built. We do. Listen to you. Do, yeah. We do. Mm-hmm. Kevin is six foot five. And I did Luscious check my 23 and me. I am legitimately 97% UK and Ireland <laughs> origins. So. Wow. So wow. I know that I am not because of my mother, but I gave one of those yes. to my dad and he was just like so disappointed because it was like yeah. 99% Irish. It's so embarrassing. <laughs> like yeah. 1% we are like just what Scottish. We are. No fun backstories or nothing, but no. No. So she sees Kivan at the feast. She becomes smitten and make it make sense. But anyway, a short while later, Kleena, a fucking queen and a fucking goddess. This is very Taylor Swift and Maddie Healy to me. No, you know what this is? It's very Liv Tyler and Viggo Mortensen to me. Because oh, she's saying, I'd shut, rather live and die shut up. in the Kevin, human world. Shut That is exactly up. what it Kevin, is. shut up. It is no, no, no. No, no, no. She gave, no. She decides Aragorn. to give it all up. I can't, yeah. I can't believe what you're saying to life. me, Kevin. I can't believe I, what you're saying to me I'm about one of the Kevin is correct. love stories. No, you're both. Kevin is correct. I, I don't. I value our friendship, so I'm not going to get into this with I'm you right now. I'm just saying that entire scene that um, she did in Fellowship of the Rings where yeah. they're in the like place with the broken shards of the sword, that uh, all could just be Kivan and Kleena dialogue. But like, okay, it. look, here's the thing. He's – Aragorn is a man. Isn't immortal. No, but he lives for a long time. He's got like yeah, special in his – Still mortal. Still a man. Still can Aragorn – is not a mediocre gives it up man for mortality love yeah because immortality is terrible immortality is a curse that is true i don't know i i don't know but but yeah definitely aragorn move on kevin yeah but she leaves with kivan (laughs) in his ship back to return to ireland where they land in a place called glandor which is on the south coast they live lovingly for some time Okay. And then one day, Keevan goes off to hunt into the forests and totally leaves his cell phone at home. Bitch. And Kleena spent some time by the seashore just doing what goddesses do, I guess. I don't know. Playing but dolphins. She takes a little nap by the seashore. And wouldn't you know it, a terribly enchanted wave comes, crashes onto the shore, and sweeps her out to sea, drowning her. 
and but it she's was the queen. she's a queen yes but, but the wave asleep. some say was enchanted by the sea god menanon maclear and he can do what he's he's higher up in that echelon so i guess it so, wasn't exactly kevin's fault uh no. she made the choice yeah. but yeah, you're right made, it wasn't yeah. his fault but Here comes she Lord meeting Alma. him is the reason why she dies the way oh, she Oh, got it, got it. Because she made herself vulnerable. Because they take retribution. Oh, right. yeah. got it, got it, got it, got it, got it. Okay. There are none okay. she pleased. Yes. Look, you know, love's a sacrifice. It is. It love is. Love is a battlefield. <laughs> we are young. And to this day, in County Cork, the locals know that when they hear particularly booming waves crashing onto the shore, they are known as Kleena's Waves. Watch All out. right, Lena. Before Kivan came and ruined her life, uh, she had many other stories and tales with mortals that I'm not going to get into. But as legend goes, while one of the McCarthy clan members, his name was Cormac McCarthy, mm-hmm. while building his castle in County Cork, uh, Cormac McCarthy became involved in legal difficulties about something. I think it had to do with the new castle being built, zoning or mm. something. He appeals to Kleena's powers and prays and helps for guidance. That night, she comes to him in a, in a dream. And she instructs him when he wakes up, he needs to kiss the first stone he sees on his way to court and your troubles will dissipate. So he's like, okay, I'm down for that. He wakes up on his way to kisses a rock that he sees. Mm -hmm. Full on tongues a rock. (laughs) (laughs) Mary Catherine Gallagher with her tree. Yes, exactly. So he tongues the rock, goes to court, and pleads his case eloquently. Eloquently. (laughs) So eloquent. Eloquently. And marvelously that he he won his case. He didn't get tongue-tied in front of the presider or nothing. So he was so honored that Kleena gave him this gift of gab or so Mm -hmm. that on his way home, he picked up that stone and had it uh, put inside one of the walls of the castle that he was building. Wow. And I forgot to mention that that castle's name is Blarney Castle. Oh! (gasps) Is that stone the Blarney stone? Is that the Blarney stone? The Blarney Stone, <gasps> Mama. And to this day, She's thousands famous. of people visit every year to kiss that kiss. same rock, hopefully to receive Kleena's gifts for themselves. COVID-19 no super idea. spreader, the Blarney Stone. <laughs> the wow. Blarney Stone. <laughs> wow. Oh, that's so fun. <laughs> yes, I and that is that. And that's a little bit about Kleena, the fairy goddess and queen of the Banshees. Cute. She could do it all and did do it all. Yes, she did. Was taken down by a man. I love her. We stand. We stand. We stand, Kleena. We stand our our Irish queens. Our Irish queens, Lord. And if you are from Ireland and you are listening to this and you have beef on how I pronounce things, you know, get at me. All right. No, please do. We'd like to tell it to my face. Yeah. (laughs) Also, hi, if you're listening to us outside of the U.S. Thank you. I know. Hi. Please tell us if you are. That's actually really odd yeah. that we yeah. get listeners from It out would of be the very country. cool to hear if we have any listeners in Ireland. So that would be incredibly 100%. cool. 
Hundred percent. Creepy and Creepspot at gmail.com. <laughs> yeah, I was just gonna say, yeah, yes, yeah. where can they? <laughs> yeah, you wanna send us where you're from and say a hi hello, you can do it at our email, creepyinquiriespod at gmail.com. Also hit us up on our Instagram at creepyinquiriespod.com. And then if mm-hmm. you are ever interested in our sources, please go to creepyinquiriespod.com where we post those every week. And then if you have a minute, please, please, please head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening and give mm-hmm. it, give us a cute little rate and review. We really, really appreciate it. Five stars or I will forge a letter from your favorite elementary school teacher. <gasps> Saying that you were boring and (gasps) pooped your pants one time. No, that was a secret. And I'm still sitting in my poop pants. (laughs) (laughs) Listener, thank you so much for joining us for episode 81, the Paul McCartney aged episode. (laughs) And until next time. Good. Good.